And turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, that's page 1137. 1137 is where you find 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to read the first 22 verses which relate to the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we'll come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you've appointed our mediator and Savior, and for whom we give thanks. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and the edification of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, dependent upon his Holy Spirit. Amen. Then 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord or the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? As for the reading of God's holy word. Then to our Forms and Prayers books, Lord's Day 30. We're going to answer three question and answers. Page 234, 235. This is the last Lord's Day dealing with the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we've seen 
in Lord's Day 25 about the means of grace, the preaching of the Word and the sacraments. The preaching is the means by which God creates faith. The sacraments are used by God to support, encourage, sustain, edify our faith. Lord's Day 26 and 27 dealt with baptism, now 28 and 29, and then finally Lord's Day 30 deal with the Lord's Supper. And at the end of Lord's question answer 82, we'll hear about the keys of the kingdom, which is then the next in our series. But first, let's answer these questions, beginning with question answer 80. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Then who should come to the Lord's table? those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And finally, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, The Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, As we come now to the last in our study of the Lord's Supper, we come to the end of our consideration of the ways in which the Lord strengthens, encourages, equips, sustains our spirituality and our faith. We have such a a rich resource, such a remarkable fountain of grace that flows from the throne room of God into our very lives when we, by baptism or the Lord's Supper, receive Uh, the sacraments through faith and in remembrance of Him, then truly the Spirit of Christ does work in us the things that He promises and bestows upon us the abundance that we need 
desperately and increasingly, you might say, in the context of a world in which we live. For we live in a world that is very anti-Christian, a world that the winds blow very hard against the way of faith and obedience. We have had a few windy days lately, and when it's particularly cold, it doesn't have to be terribly cold, but when it's a little bit cold and windy, that's a very difficult sort of condition to be out in. Then you find yourself being uh, shivered. The wind goes right through you. It seems to, to drop your core temperature and make you feel cold. We live in a world like that where the winds, the cold winds of unbelief and rebellion blow against us so very hard every day, all the time. We're never given a moment's rest. And that, that culture just calls us to rebel against the Lord and to leave the things of the faith. And we come to worship each Lord's Day and we come to worship to feed and feast upon the grace of God in the proclaimed Word of Jesus Christ, but also in the sacraments. And in those sacraments, we are fed, nourished, and equipped, particularly in the Lord's Supper, in order to stand fast and to stand against, securely to fight against the things of this fallen world. And indeed, for that reason, it ought to be very precious to us, the table of our Lord. Very, very precious. Not just the baptismal font, but also the table of our Lord should be something that we value deeply, that we want all of our members to feast from. We want all of our children to find their place there. You might say that when they're baptized, a place setting is put on the table of our Lord for them with their name. Sometimes you go to weddings and they have your name in front of your plate. Well, there's a plate with the name of each of our baptized children on it, and we want all of them to be able to sit at that table and feast with us in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we need to be wise and we need to make sure that we guard the table of our Lord. That is, when we deal with the table of our Lord, when we deal with the sacraments generally, when we deal with these precious jewels of God carelessly, we will find ourselves without them very quickly. You know, of course, that the Queen, Queen of Can- or the King rather, the King of Canada and the King of England uh, has some very remarkable jewels that he has access to, crowns and, and, and various scepters. They're called the crown jewels and they are stored in the Tower of London in London itself. You can't just come up against them. You can't just go and see them and take them and touch them. You have to get in line. You have to buy a ticket. You have to get in line. And you have to keep moving. There are guards to make sure that you don't stop. You have to keep moving in this circular movement around the crown jewels because they're so precious. They're so valuable, not only in terms of the jewels that are on them, but in their historic significance for the nation, for the parliament that exists in London, the mother of all parliaments, and for all of the democracy that has extended over the face of the earth. These are symbols of all of that, and the people of of England cherish and guard not just the symbols, but the meaning behind them. Well, if we cherish the meaning of the Lord's Supper, and we should, we should be so encouraged by it, then we should also want to guard it, not hiding it away, to be sure, not hiding it away, but nonetheless guarding the precious nature of the Lord's Supper and guarding it, first of all, from all errors. The Catechism, in its opening question and answer of Lord's Day 30, rightly distinguishes between the teaching of the Word of God and the idolatrous error of the Roman Catholic Church. The sacrament says to us as our form or as our question and answer reminds us, rich and precious truths. Listen again to the 
wonderful gift that is ours when we come to the table of our Lord. Here the, the diamonds and the sapphires and the emeralds that are handed to us, you might say, every time we come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all of our sins are forgiven, even there alone. We could stop there and that'd be worth it. That'd be worth coming to the Lord's Supper for, just to be encouraged and reminded that all of our sins are forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He accomplished on the cross once for all. But it also declares to us, there's even more here, not only is that encouragement ours, there's one more. And we come to the table broken. We come to the table with our sins, our scars, our foolishness, our mistakes. Not from years and years ago, but from yesterday, from this week. And to come and to be again given the encouragement. The Lord knows your sins, but He has washed them in the blood. What a comfort that is. But it also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who, is, who with His true body rather is now at heaven, now in heaven at the right hand of the Father where He wants us to worship Him. The, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of creation and recreation. The Spirit of faith. The Spirit of knowledge. The Spirit of strength and encouragement. We have been given a gift so mighty, so glorious that there is no money that can purchase it. There is no way that we can ever earn it before the face of God, but it is given to us freely through faith in Jesus Christ. Completely forgiven. United to Christ, what a gift, what a grace, what a goodness. Definitive, strong, and commanding are these words and encouraging to all of us. But not if you're a Roman Catholic and you go to a Roman Catholic church. Now, of course, we understand that here we're again bumping against the historical setting for the Heidelberg Catechism, one that may not be entirely familiar to us, but is nonetheless still vital, for it teaches us an important lesson. Because you see, the Roman Catholic Church teaches in its Mass, the equivalent to the Lord's Supper, that your sins are not forgiven by what Jesus did. That your sins, if they're forgiven, are forgiven only because the priest does something. The Roman Catholic Church says that the Jesus is bodily present. That Jesus is crucified every time the wafer is given to the people. Every time the words of the incantation are mentioned, then Jesus is again crucified. That's why if you go into a Roman Catholic hospital, you will find crosses on various walls. And not only crosses, but Jesus hanging on that cross. For the Roman Catholic Church teaches and believes that Jesus Christ has not finished sacrificing Himself for His people. He continues to be crucified daily. All of which means that the Roman Catholic Mass is idolatrous. It says that you ought to worship the host, that you ought to worship this bit of bread that has been turned into the very real body of Christ, and that it is turned into the real body of Christ only when the priest says the right words and does the right thing. Which is all to say that it is a denial of Jesus Christ's one sacrifice for your sins, and leaves you with no comfort, but only calls you to grieve. Now in our day and in the day in which we're living, the cultural context in which we've been placed, we have to defend as church the right of the Reformed Church to be able to be critical, to be able to criticize or speak ill of any other religious system. The world says to us, who are you to say they're wrong? They say you're wrong, and then nobody really knows the truth in the end. Indeed, culturally, we're taught, we're told that we are to be tolerant. We must be tolerant. And of course, there is a glorious truth there, a truth that is rooted in the teaching of God's Word. 
tolerance, which is a uniquely Christian characteristic brought into this world by the Christian church and spread through the Christian church. You don't find it in non-Christian cultures. Tolerance is rooted in the very image of God by which all men are created, so that Christians, when they see another human being, irrespective of their creed, color, their confession, we say there's an image bearer of God. There is one who ought to be tolerated, treated with respect, loved as a neighbor. And that, if what we mean by tolerance is that, then we mean a good thing. But our, church, our culture, rather, does not teach that kind of tolerance, classical tolerance, if you will. There is a new kind of tolerance which is rooted not in the image of God, but in the belief that there is no God, that there is no truth, that everything is relative, so you can't possibly know you're right, and you can't possibly say someone else is wrong. Everything is just whatever you want it to be. And so the world says to us, how dare you criticize anybody? Just stay in your lane. Stay in your church. Stay in your home. You can worship your religion there, but do not bring it out into this world. Do not speak ill of any other faith. And it is true. We don't want as Christians to generate our conversations with fellow believers into some mud-slinging, arguing about how many angels are on the head of a pin. We don't want to be the kind of people that get trapped and caught up with insignificant and irrelevant ideas that that only show how narrow-minded we might be. I mean, there is value, of course. There is worth in arguing about different ideas, especially matters that are of not great significance. We can argue all day about whether the Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup or what the weather's doing and what the government's doing. But if we're arguing about things that matter, if we're arguing about things of eternity, if we're arguing about the gospel, we don't want to come off as mudslingers. We don't want to come off as narrow-minded. We want to come off as gracious. We want to represent Jesus Christ. We want to represent the good news of the gospel. We need to be gracious and winning to our brothers and sisters. But the only way we'll ever do that as a church and as individuals, as families and friends, is if we stand upon the sure foundation of God's Word and where we say what God's Word says concerning the glorious good news of the Gospel. Where God's Word is clear, we may not be unclear. And where God warns, we may not stifle. In the end, we're not the ones who define the truth after all. We receive it from the Lord. And to diminish or deny the truth of God's saving work in Jesus Christ would be profoundly unwise. The culture wants us to do that. Even sometimes our own instinct wants us to do that. To diminish the light of the Gospel because it's hurting the eyes of those that we love. Don't be so religious. Don't be so holy. Don't be so narrow-minded. And so we want to say, well, this is what I believe. This is how I see it. This is... But if it's the truth, it's the truth for all men. It is the truth that all men must hear. Indeed, it is the truth by which all men will be saved. And indeed, that's what's at the heart of this question and answer 80 in the Heidelberg Catechism. The question and answer defends the beauty and the majesty of the glorious sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all of His people, as the only hope and power by which we are saved. That is not and must never be a minor matter to any of us. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is our precious gift, our glorious grace, our joyful 
joyful good news that we may enjoy and experience and share and proclaim. It is central to the very gospel message. And we ought to stand and defend that. Sometimes we see children defending their family members, their friends, their parents maybe. The rather well-known, my dad is bigger than your dad sort of thing. And when we see on the playground at school a child standing up for his brother or sister, standing up for his family, standing up for his name, we think that's admirable. We think that's good. We say, well done. Well, surely we ought to stand up for Jesus Christ. Surely we ought to stand up for our Father in heaven. We who are recipients of a glorious and great grace, the overflow of which is so wonderful it sustains and maintains us all the days of our lives. We ought to defend the beauty and the majesty of what Jesus Christ has done. Indeed, we ought to defend it first of all within the context of our own hearts. Lest we think that we can take the speck out of our brother's eyes before we take the log out of our own, let us admit that it is easy for us as well to fall away from this powerful truth and to join the Roman Catholics in some way or another. That is, that we may not take up all the pomp and the circumstance and all the rational arguments and all the rest, but we do prefer, don't we, being able to rest upon our own activity as the source of our comfort for salvation. We struggle with doubt when we sin. We stand firm when we sacrifice and serve obediently. When we do good, we think we're okay with God. When we do ill, we think we're bad with God. Because in the end, we all lean towards, we all slide into works righteousness. We all assume that our standing before God is maybe not due to a priest and his words about the host, but they are due to our own good works. And we need to be daily reminded, don't we? We need to be encouraged, especially in this culture where we cannot stand against this wind, where we cannot stand against this this fierce force of evil. We need to be reminded that our only hope and our only strength is in the Lord. You may find on YouTube various picture or clips of people standing against the wind in places like Ireland and in places like Scotland on their west coast where the wind comes howling off of the ocean from the waters of the Gulf Stream. And that wind can make you stand at about a 45 degree angle into it and barely move. That's the world, that's the culture in which we're currently living. And in that culture, we are insufficient. We're not strong enough to resist temptation, to resist lust, to resist lying, to resist greed, to resist materialism, to resist selfishness, to resist expressive individualism and the goal of happiness as the greatest good of our lives, and on and on it goes. Those of us who may be struggling with addictions, who may be struggling with pornography or trying to fight it, you know how weak you are in those moments. Those of us that may be dealing with same-sex attraction and the lust of the flesh that deal with that, you may know how hard it is to fight against these things. And you cannot do them on your own. You cannot fight except by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you need, as we all need, that daily reminder that our strength is in the Lord and that our salvation is not, first of all, in our own ability, but in His grace, in His blood, in His sacrifice, and in His Son. That we are utterly dependent upon Him for every good thing. So when we defend the truth of God's Word in this Lord's Day, we are not only standing for the glory of our King, we are reminding ourselves who we are and humbling our own hearts before the throne of grace. Challenging ourselves to live 
Indeed, that is the challenge of question and answer 80. Is the sufficient death of Christ your great comfort in the midst of a fallen world? Or is it just another idea, a nice thought, but not a precious and powerful grace? Are you willing to stand for the work of Christ on His behalf and defend His good name? Or is it just something you could take or leave? Do you encourage others to come to the table of our Lord? Do you encourage your children to do all that is necessary to be admitted to this table of our Lord that they too might experience with us the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Do you see how great a fountain of grace flows from that table? Because it is the Lord's table. It is the Lord's Supper. And being the Lord's Supper, the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord, it is a place of great mercy. We are to guard the table of our Lord from all error, and we are to do so for all believers. In question answer 81, the catechism reminds us who, of those who may attend the table of our Lord. There's a simple description offered here for believers. After all, the three qualities described here are the three qualities of a Christian. They know their need of grace, displeased with themselves because of their sins. They know the majesty of their Savior. They are covered in the glorious righteousness of this one sacrifice of Christ. And they desire strong faith. They desire a better life. They acknowledge that even in their Christianity, even in their spirituality, they're not sufficient. They need to grow. They want more. Now notice that no level of achievement is included in these three vital characteristics of a Christian. There are three things said about who may attend the Lord's Supper. Three characteristics that are given. But what is not given is this. Those who really, really, really know their sin. Those who are theologically precise when it comes to their understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and can defend the doctrine of justification precisely. Those who have demonstrated their abilities to live for the Lord in powerful ways and self-sacrificial ways that make everybody stand in awe of their faith. That's not what the catechism says. Catechism doesn't say you have to really, really know your sin and you have to be theologically precise about Jesus Christ and you have to have done great things in order to be welcomed to the table of our Lord. I mean, we wish that this were the case, that all of us had these qualities to be sure. We wish this about ourselves. But what the Catechism says, what the Word of God teaches is this. That those who are displeased, that those who trust, those who desire, those are great words. Those are glorious words. We do none of these things perfectly. We do none of these things. All of us have to look into the cupboard of our own hearts and recognize the paucity, the poverty, the emptiness that even the holiest among us has but a small beginning. But are you displeased with yourself? Do you trust your Savior? Do you desire to live for Him? We can testify surely, even in the midst of our own grief and sorrow, even in the midst of our own embarrassment and humility, even in the fact that we don't think that we're good enough, that we are displeased with ourselves. We are not good enough. Yes, we know that Jesus Christ is sufficient. We know that His sacrifice is great. We know that His payment is precious. And we desire that sacrifice more and more. We desire to rest in that power and to be freed, freed from all of these chains of sin. Even in these qualities, we need the encouraging, sustaining, and equipping grace of God 
promised us in the supper, which is to say the people that get to come to the table of our Lord are not super Christians. They're just Christians, normal Christians, ordinary Christians, struggling Christians, stumbling Christians, suffering Christians. That this is the requirement for participation in the sacrament is consistent with the Word of God concerning the sacrament itself. We didn't read from 1 Corinthians 11, but Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11 about eating and drinking judgment to ourselves if we don't participate in the way that we ought is a very serious matter and one that we must remain impressed by. We read from 1 Corinthians 10 where he begins the warning, a warning about feasting with demons and feasting with the Lord. Can you be at the table of demons during the week and at the table of our Lord on the Sunday? And do you think that God can do nothing about it? Do you not fear Him? This is why, says the Apostle in chapter 11, some of you are so sick, spiritually sick, physically sick as well. The punishment of God for failing to participate properly is visited upon those who carelessly and callously participate in the sacrament, not believingly and humbly. Indeed, the sacrament itself demands not only our active participation, remember the words are take and eat, but our active spiritual participation. Remember, we are told to remember and believe. Remember what God has done for you. Remember who you are. Believe that the Lord has saved you. Believe that you are washed in His blood. To suggest, therefore, that an unbeliever can participate in this way is simply to subject them to God's judgment. Don't miss that. To invite an unbeliever who is unregenerate, unbelieving, does not know the things of God, and to allow him to participate in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper is to give to him poison, as Calvin says. To suggest that any participant does not need to give evidence of these characteristics is equally to threaten them with the judgment of the righteous God. To say to anybody, you decide, you judge, we can't really, is very culturally relevant, but biblically unwise. Now to be sure, we can have a rather extended conversation and a careful conversation about what it means to evidence these characteristics in the Christian life. Even as we ought to and can have a conversation about what age is reasonable to expect such characteristics to be demonstrated. Too often, we despite our efforts to not make profession of faith a graduation, find ourselves on just this track at the end of which is profession of faith and everybody just does it. That's the way it goes. And there is a loveliness about that. Don't misunderstand that. We're not trying to castigate that either. But rather, we should always be saying to our children, to our young members of the congregation from their earliest times as they sit beside us in church and maybe ask for the first time, what's going on here? What is this Lord's Supper all about? We ought to be saying to them, well, it's for you too. But you have to show that you know you're displeased with yourself. You have to evidence your trust in Jesus Christ and you have to give convincing conviction concerning your desire to live the Christian life. We can have conversations about what it means to demonstrate that and when we can demonstrate that. But to not expect these things is to deny the warning of God in His Word and to misunderstand the sacrament itself. Indeed, it is to rob ourselves of the comfort of this grace. You see, not only do we run the risk of leaving sinners in their sin when we do not defend the principles of the Lord's Supper, but we also cut our own nose off to spite our face. 
After all, if everyone is permitted to the table in a culturally sensitive, inclusive tolerance, then can anyone believe they are united to Jesus Christ in a saving way? If everyone receives the bread and the wine and the message of the bread and the wine is you're united to Christ and you sit beside a man you know is unbelieving, ungodly, and wicked in all that he does, then is he getting the same word you're getting? And if he's not getting the same word you're getting, are you getting it? If everyone is permitted at the table, then no one can know that they are united to Christ. And if no one can know such comfort, then none of us can either. That is, we are robbing ourselves of this grace in order to avoid offending the unbeliever. Instead of calling that unbeliever to repentance and faith. Instead of calling that member to show evidence of their marks of a Christian life. Instead of saying, we are willing to take your word, but we want to see it demonstrated. If we would know the comfort of this supper, if we would know it for ourselves and for the joy of our hearts, if we would feast upon this word and be so encouraged and equipped for a fallen world such as we are in, we must defend the scriptural standard for who may participate in this supper. And we must call all men to demonstrate their commitment to repentance, faith, and living for the gospel. Sometimes we do that in ways that are very difficult. When a member of the church does something, they are otherwise believing, they are otherwise willing to come to church, they are otherwise living what might be described as a Christian life. And then the elders have to come and say, yes, but. Yes, but in this very important area, in your relationship, your marriage, in your business, in your theology, in your walk, you are showing rebellion to God. You are not being faithful to your spouse. You are not dealing with your employees well. You are, you are not speaking of God as He reveals Himself in His Word. In doctrine or in life, you are living in rebellion to God. And when that member says, too bad has adopted the cultural context, has adopted the cultural milieu, and says, but I am my own person. You can't tell me what to do. Then the church might have to say, but then we guard the table from you. And we guard the congregation from you. We say to you, you may not participate. Not because we want you to be condemned. Not because we want to think ill of you. Not even because we think that we're better than you. But because we know the seriousness of Christ and His grace in Jesus Christ and we want to preserve and protect the precious message of the Gospel so that all men may know peace. Now to be sure, in all, as in all the Christian life, getting the balance right or better, keeping our focus on Jesus Christ is the very real challenge. Sometimes we can misuse the table of our Lord in ways that are inappropriate. And we ought to see the table of our Lord as a feast it ought to be our heart's desire to see all believers that come and fellowship with us on a Sunday to join with us in celebrating this sacrament. It's not a marker of a narrow church culture, but a table at which all believers are welcome. But our gracious invitation must be balanced by our grave appreciation of the Lord's righteousness. Even as our grave appreciation of the Lord's righteousness must be balanced by, His, by our appreciation of His great graciousness. That is to say, the Lord's Supper must be for all of us always a joyful feast, a celebration of the enormity of God's grace. Not an exclusionary marker used to manage church membership, but an opportunity for the people of God to come and feast upon His grace. 
That is what the Lord calls us to defend the table for. That all who come might stand amazed and be fed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And therefore we are to guard the table of our Lord from all misuse. The godly and the unrepentant are kept from the table. There is a sense in which we might all speak of our own failures in this respect. Notice particularly in question and answer 81, there's a reference to hypocrites. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant eat and drink judgment to themselves. I think that we would all say on some level we are all hypocrites, that the church is full of hypocrites. Sometimes you hear people say that, well, I'm not going to go to church with those hypocrites. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. If you understand hypocrite to mean someone who says that they are committed to living for the Lord, but doesn't fulfill that commitment. That's true of all of us. None of us is consistent. None of us is working out our salvation faithfully or fully. All of us can do better. All of us can grow. In that sense, we are all hypocrites. But there is another way in which hypocrites is also used, a more technical term. A hypocrite is somebody that says they love the Lord, that seems even to show that they love the Lord, but inside where you can't see them, they don't love the Lord. Inside, they make fun of the church. Inside, they think ill of the church. Inside, when they're with their buddies on a, on a Friday night in a bar where nobody can see them, they ridicule the church. That's different, isn't it? Such hypocrites will participate in the Lord's Supper because the church cannot exclude them. The church cannot know a hypocrite, not truly, not in this technical sense. A hypocrite looks good but isn't good. Only God can judge that. But the church can judge other things. As question and answer says, not mentioning now hypocrites, but those who openly profess how, by the, how they live and uh, that they are unbelieving and ungodly, the church can judge that they may not participate in the Lord's Supper. Question and answer 82 speaks of those we know about. Those in our own lives who say things or do things that we know are so contrary to the Word of God that they question this person's commitment. Again, don't misunderstand. All of us are faltering. All of us are failing. All of us get angry when we shouldn't. All of us use language that we shouldn't. All of us desire things we shouldn't. All of us lie when we should tell the truth. We all struggle with that. And sometimes that can be a very hard thing. Sometimes it makes us wonder whether the person across from us, the person that we're dealing with, is the person we think they are. It can be very existentially difficult when someone sins against us. But understand that there are also people who don't just, like all of us, stumble and falter and fail, but who by how they profess and how they live call into question their very commitment to Jesus Christ. That if you were to, you might say, put on paper the characteristics of this individual in terms of the positive things, here's the positive things, and then on another piece of paper the negative things, but by the way, they do these things too. And you were to give those to someone and say, no, is this a person a Christian or not? They would be unable to discern. I, I don't know. This, this, this person over here seems good, but this person over here seems terrible. To be sure, this is not a simple matter to discern. I mean, in the extremes it is when somebody's really wicked, very easy to discern. We can, at times, distinguish between the godly and the ungodly without too much difficulty. But as we draw to the closer to that line that separates the godly from the ungodly, as we get closer to that separating line, 
the ungodly can seem godly, and the godly can seem ungodly. How do we then discern? In a way, the simple answer is simply by calling them to repentance and faith. And to do that because we know that the sheep hear His voice and follow the great shepherd. And the great shepherd says to all of His people, repent and believe. And so if we issue into the life of a member of the congregation the call to repent and believe, those who are His sheep will follow Him. That's a simple, of course, method by which we can minister to those who seem to be struggling in the faith. And don't misunderstand, it takes much time, wisdom, and patience to administer that word faithfully into the lives of, your, of God's people. It's not as though the consistory or the congregation or individuals ought to come to an in, a member of the congregation who's made one mistake and say, Aha! I got you. You are a sinner. Repent and believe. But we ought to come to each other. We ought to have a love for each other and a concern for each other so that when we see each other straying, when we see each other struggling, we say, you know what, I think, I think you need to rest- be restored to the Lord. I think you need to think more carefully about what God's grace means to you. I think you need to work out more faithfully what it means to live the Christian life. If we have a friend, young men, if we have a friend that we know is caught up in porn, maybe we need to speak a word to that brother. Or sisters, if you have a friend who's making poor decisions, maybe she's in a relationship with a guy that she shouldn't be, you need to say something to her. You don't need to say to her, listen, unless you break up with this guy, I'm going to call the elders and that's the way it's going to go. But you can say to them, I have a concern for you and I see that you're making choices that aren't consistent with the Word of God and I want to see you restored. I want to see you living the good life. I want to see you walking in the way of faith and obedience. And what you will discover as you persistently minister to this member of the congregation that one of two things will happen. Either the fruit of righteousness will be born and they will say, I know, I know. I struggle, but I know. Help me. Or in time, they will say, who are you? And how dare you? It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. They will either draw closer to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, desiring that precious fountain of mercy, or they will stray farther from it. Indeed, I think we understand that instinctively. That's why we don't always want to say things to people. That's why we don't always want to call them to repentance and faith, because we know that if we do, they might get so angry, they might get so hurt, they might leave. But maybe that's the best thing for them. To make clear that they need Jesus Christ, that they need to be brought into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Indeed, that ought to be our concern in these moments. We ought to be concerned with our brother and sister for the sake of their own relationship with the Lord and indeed for the sake of the church's relationship as well. Make no mistake, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A congregation that allows, as so often was the case in the churches of of Revelation, if you read through the churches of Revelation, those seven churches, two of them are good, five of them are not. And there's warnings with those five. You need to, otherwise I'm going to tell you, you've got to fix this. Otherwise I'm going to take my lamp away from you. One of the things that we often have to fix is that we allow certain lifestyles, sinful lifestyles, to just engender themselves within our congregation without calling them out. And Jesus says to us, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So be wise. 
Of course, that's never pleasant. Nobody enjoys that. Nobody wants to do that. But in the end, it's necessary. And in the end, it's good. In the end, it's good. You know, of course, how the apostle in 1 Corinthians 5 called the church there to deal with a member that was living in great sin. And he says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven and the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, Put that member out so that you can celebrate the supper with sincerity and truth. Love, you understand, must always win the day. A love that desires to see the sinner restored to the Father, that defends the only way that we can live is through faith in Jesus Christ, and that seeks to be a blessing to the church that the world might know the greatness of our God, that the light of the gospel might persistently shine. And that's what we need to guard. That's what we need to have as our great priority. That's what the gospel needs to convince us of. That when we come to the table of our Lord, we see that the most precious thing we possess is not our accomplishments, our position, our place within the congregation. It is that we have Jesus Christ. And let all be taken from us. This cannot be taken from us that in Jesus Christ we are redeemed. We are precious and powerful in Him. And knowing that, knowing that it always ought to be what we guard. Not in some Tower of London way that we put away that nobody can see. Oh no, we hold it out to the world very obviously. We say, behold our God, the great and glorious King Jesus Christ. But we don't diminish the demand of that Gospel when it says, repent and believe for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. And because judgment begins with the church, we start here. We call each other. Each time we have Lord's Supper, each time again the week before, prepare your hearts, repent and believe, and come feast upon a grace so great and glorious. It will satisfy your souls in the way that nothing else can. No technology, no video game, no pornography, no drink, no drugs, nothing will satisfy you as great as the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So come, take and eat. Remember and believe. Let's thank the Lord for that in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your table. And though we live in a relativistic culture that says we should welcome everybody, and though we want everybody to participate, Lord, like you, we would see that all men were saved. Yet you call us to never dull the edges of the great word of the gospel, that double-edged sword. But to say to all who come in sincerity and truth, broken, stumbling, struggling, faltering, failing, receive the precious, powerful grace of God through Jesus Christ and know that your sins are forgiven and that the Spirit of God is equipping you for service within His church and world. Even as we are to say to those who are living in arrogant unbelief and rebellion, be warned. For this is the living God. This is not an idle God who cannot see or hear or speak. This is the God who holds your life in His hand. Do not trample the blood of the covenant underfoot lest He be angry with you and you die. Help us, Lord, to wield this double-edged sword with compassion, with concern, with conviction, calling all men to join with us in celebration of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.